The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What kind of idea do I have about who I might turn into? I didn't have any idea. Um, I had uh, no idea how anybody turned into anything. Um, I was what I was. Uh, I was this, this, this kid, this boy. Um, I, when I started college, I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just thought that's that's something you could. I didn't. That's something you could you could be. Um, and uh, I, I I was very interested in um, uh, equality and justice uh, in America. Uh, partly, I suppose, from growing up Jewish. Um, and uh, so I thought that if I was a lawyer, um, I'd be marching in the cause of truth and justice. Um, but within a year, and, I, and I, for the first year or so, I took pre-law courses and so on. Uh, and I enjoyed some of them. Um, but I began to take literature, and then the, the bell rang again. Um, and um, uh, that just overwhelmed everything. And so I thought then that I'd be a college professor, uh, that I'd be an English teacher. Um, and uh, that's what I thought throughout college. And then I went to graduate school to get an advanced degree to become an English professor. Um, and um, I, um, I wasn't interested in commerce. Uh, I, my interest in material things was negligible. Um, I didn't want to get a lot of dough. Uh, and uh, so I thought I'd be a college professor. And in those days, college professors were paid very poorly. Maybe they still are. And um, then um, I began to write stories. Uh, the first ones were no good. They were terrible. Little college stories. And then I, I got better somehow. Um, and um, I, I, I began to sell some stories. Um, uh, not to, uh, I didn't make huge sums of money, but I, people were recognizing that I was, had something. Um, and then I, I, I sold a story to Esquire magazine uh, in um, 1958. Uh, I was 25. I got 800 bucks. So I quit my job teaching at the University of Chicago and came east with my 800 bucks um, and thinking I could live for $100 a month. And it was, I did it. Uh, and um, then, I was off on, then I was off on becoming a writer. But no, I never dreamed of it. Never wanted it. Never thought of it. Hmm. That's Philip Roth talking about his lack of desire to become a writer when he was young. He was the bard of Newark, the crown prince of highbrow smut, a great literary rascal. He was also an endless, obsessive seducer of both people and readers, a tireless warrior against critics, real and imagined, a prize winner, and a secret conniver 
in the literary world, a man both large-souled and petty, a backscratcher, a con artist, a jerk, a son, a passionate betrayer, a man, a man, a man, a man. Not always putting masculinity in the best light, but in a strong light, nevertheless. And he was devoted to his work and to literature in general. Philip Roth, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson. It's so good to be here. It's not quite October yet. My favorite month, but almost. Welcome to the podcast. I am headed back to my spiritual home, the University of Chicago, pretty soon, and I can't wait. I'm sure I'll be thinking about Mike while I'm there, as I always do. Throw a few thoughts his way. (laughs) Bits of nostalgia, although... The powers that be have destroyed the dorm where we once lived. Since it was hopelessly outdated, that thing was a fortress. It was designed in the 60s when students were, were, had taken to occupying buildings, and it had the most labyrinthine design imaginable. You entered through some double glass doors, showed, flashed an ID there, walked up some steps, turned corners, swiped your way through more entries, walked down corridors, and then to the elevator bank. Took five minutes just to get to the elevator. That building had one fine feature in those rooms, some nice bay windows that let you see all around the city of Chicago. But the story was that they built the building and the rooms were so small that the building violated the health code. So to get a few extra square inches of footage, they bumped out the windows. I had a roommate for a year. That's another long story. And then I had a a single... My second year, that's when Mike showed up, and by then, I had a computer. I worked all summer to buy that Macintosh, which helped me write papers in the comfort of my dorm room. It also allowed a user to play Tetris, and Mike became hooked. Only a handful of us had computers. They all had Tetris. Mike would go from room to room. Looking for his fix. I used to go to bed at night, fall asleep, and wake up with Mike sitting in my chair at my desk, the blue glow of the screen lighting up his intent face. He was like an addict, an addict in search of a fix, rattling door handles to see if he could gain entry, and then sneaking in in the cover of darkness, turning on the computer to shoot Tetris into his veins. Oh, sorry, he would say as I cleared my throat. Or actually, since he was so intent on his game, it'd be more like, sorry. I didn't want to wake you to ask. You awake? I am now, I would say. There would be a long pause as he clicked away. I would start to drift off, and then he would say, New high score. 
Ah, yes, those days, October days, days in the dead of winter and days of spring. Literature was in the air for us as we went to class and read endlessly in the coffee shops and libraries and reading rooms and at home, in our chairs and in our beds. Bellow was the king of that realm, Saul Bellow, but Philip Roth was maybe the crown crown prince, the heir in waiting, willing to be a bit of a court jester as he waited to assume the throne, and so we read him to Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint were staples, and soon he would come out with Sabbath Theater, which became another staple. Those of us diving deep would get into even the obscure works, the letting goes and the when she was goods of his canon. He was intoxicating. Like Bellow, he had his own voice, charming and smart, eager, imploring, urging, energetic, and there was something compelling about seeing what he was up to or what he and his stand-in narrators were obsessed with or angry about. To get those books and check in on him, to see how he was doing, what battles he was fighting, whether it would give any insight into his common themes, books, mothers, lovers, and his penis, not in that order necessarily. Later, he would dig into history and mortality and America and aging, human body frailty, lots of topics. But it's sex that animated him, sex and the getting of it. It can be hard to read, Roth, now, and tiring. But he is being read and loved by many, and he's a fixture on the literary landscape. He never won the Nobel Prize he longed for, But he won lots of other prizes, and he more or less dominated his era for long stretches at a time. Even now, he's capable of inspiring controversy. As we touched on a bit with our guest, Laura Marsh, literary editor of The New Republic, who was a canary in the coal mine when his latest biography came out, she was pointing out some chinks and flaws before the whole thing collapsed. So... Here's what we're going to do. We will take a break, come back with some details about who Roth was and how he lived, and then Mike will join us for a draft. Ten things to say about Philip Roth. We've both spent a few decades now where Roth was one of a handful of figures dominating the literary scene. We'll talk about whether he's worth reading now, and if so, what we would recommend. We'll talk about what he wrote about and what stands out to us at this vantage point. Roth was a prickly figure who could be generous. We'll try to be generous in return, but forgive us if at times we return his prickliness as well. Philip Roth's Life and Works, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny 
in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Philip Milton Roth was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1933. His father, Herman, was an insurance broker. His family was Jewish, and his parents were second-generation Americans. Roth went to Rutgers and Bucknell for undergrad and then went to the University of Chicago to get a master's degree in English literature. He was trying to be a writer then, and he was a writing instructor, but it wasn't until he told his friend Richard Stern about some experiences he had had as a teenager in the suburbs of New Jersey that his creative writing started to take off. Why don't you write about that? Stern said. And Roth was set for life. He had his subject now, himself. Himself and his girlfriends, those he had had and those he wanted. His first book, Goodbye Columbus, a novella and short stories, won the National Book Award in 1960. He was a writer, now someone of importance, the sort of novelist who wrote big novels in a Henry James style. A reviewer, a critic, an essayist, a player. Meanwhile, he had gotten married, was miserable in that marriage, lots of blame to go around, and I won't wade into all of that here. But the recent back and forth about the latest biography that came out of Roth should give you a good sense of the pros and cons, or maybe I should say the arguments on both sides pro-Roth against Roth. He was married to and in love with some difficult women in his life. That seems to be true, but it also seems to be true that he had an attitude of grievance toward them and toward women in general that problematized every relationship he had. Mike and I go through this, so I won't belabor it here. He was a respected, if not famous, writer in the 60s, and then his book, Portnoy's Complaint, his fourth novel, published in 1969, made him a much bigger player in American culture. It was shocking in its day. Famously, the main character masturbates with a piece of liver that his mother serves for dinner, among other wild and woolly passages of growth and urgent sexuality. American literature had been pent up for a while thanks to censorship and books like Lolita and Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal and John Updike's Couples and Portnoy's Complaint smashed the dam. Roth was experimental throughout the 70s and he created an alter ego named Nathan Zuckerman and by the 80s he was known for blurring the lines of narrator and author. He was also known for marriages and celebrity appearances and winning prizes. He had power now, power in the literary world, which he sometimes abused, but sometimes used for good, such as helping the writers of Eastern Europe, who were then behind the Iron Curtain. As for his own writing, he was prolific, but he would soon become even more so as he holed up in the Berkshires and started cranking out one ambitious work after another. Operation Shylock in 1993, Sabbath's Theater in 1995, 
American pastoral in 1997. I married a communist in 1998. He was looking at America now, the America of political correctness and identity politics, the America of post-World War II, Jewish America and all its battles, America of New York City and the tri-state area, alternative history Americas, America of the Korean War, lots of different Americas just as he had lots of different characters, and yet all of them were kind of extensions of Roth. What formed him? His parents, his Newark years, his first wife and her death by a car crash, shockingly young, his shedding of his religion, but not its culture. I'm anti-religious, he once said. I find religious people hideous. I hate the religious lies. When I write, I'm alone. It's filled with fear and loneliness and anxiety, and I never needed religion to save me. End quote. What did save him? If anything, it was his fight. The fight in him, the scratchy claws that swung wildly at his perceived enemies. And it was literature that saved him. He loved it. He loved making it, and he was very good at it. He was an extraordinarily flawed human being, and more and more flaws are being revealed to us all the time. At times, these flaws interfered with his writing, in my judgment, but I think he'll be read, warts and all. Maybe not all of his works, but some of it. It's hard to imagine any future historian looking back at the America of 1960 to 2010 and not finding Roth a compelling part of it. Whether that means we should read a little or a lot is still an open question, I think. Roth died at the age of 85. He left his book collection and more than $2 million to the Newark Public Library. His great legacy is books, both the ones he wrote and the ones he championed. Let's bring out Mike and talk about Philip Roth. We'll do that after this. Joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, El Presidente, here to discuss 10 things to say about Philip Roth. I intentionally did not say 10 good things or 10 bad things because I wanted to leave that open. We're reconsidering Roth. So this is not a celebration or a condemnation, although we might end up doing some of both. This is more of a 10 things worth discussing. I hope that's how you prepared it, Mike. Let's head to the draft room and talk about the Bard of Newark. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jeff. So, Mike, Philip Roth, I know we were reading him back at the University of Chicago where he had some ties. Did you ever meet him back in the 90s? Never met him, never saw him, and 
honestly, I always just associate him with New Jersey. Mm, yeah, well, I saw him once in Chicago. I saw him once at a bookstore, and it was kind of a sad moment. Uh, he was there for a reading of his friend and our old professor, Richard Stern. Some of our listeners might know Richard Stern. Stern liked to think of himself as one of the big three, Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, and Richard Stern, and they were all friends. But Stern was miles behind the first two in terms of success or fame. But the, but they were friends. They respected one another. And it wasn't just pathetic, but it was kind of on that edge. And I went to a, a reading. Did I ever tell you the story about the reading of Stern? No. So I went to a reading. Richard Stern was reading. It was at the bookstore in Hyde Park. And the bookstore owner came out and said, well, you know, I know you're all here to, to listen to Richard Stern, read from his new book. And one of the great pleasures of hosting a reading with Richard Stern is we get such a distinguished literary audience. And then he looked right at me and I thought, Oh, wow. You know, Jack Wilson here getting my start. I thought I was a nobody. And then I realized that I was sitting right next to Philip Roth and Philip Roth kind of smiled and nodded at everyone. And then the bookstore owner came up. He'd left the front of the room where he was standing next to Stern and he shook Philip Roth's hand. And, you know, said hello. And that took like a minute or so. And Stern was just up there at the table waiting to read. And then the owner went to stand in the back of the room and didn't finish his introduction or <laughs> or he had no other introduction prepared. So Stern just sort of looked at him for a while and then realized that there was going to be no more introduction. And so then he started reading from his stories. But before he started that, he told everyone that there were several unfortunate typos in the book, which he blamed on his publisher. And he, he didn't have a very distinguished publisher at that point. And anyway, it was he was listing pages for people to correct in their copies. But nobody really had a copy because if anyone was going to buy it, they were going to buy it afterwards. It, it was just all kind of sad but it was my my brush with fame i guess i i sat shoulder to shoulder with philip roth so you connect him with with new jersey but what about new york city or connecticut he lived in connecticut for a while yeah that's where i i i, I would have thought i might have you know bumped into him because uh yeah i've spent some summers in the past in connecticut in litchfield county and he has he lived for a long time in cornwall yeah. which is very close to where I hang out. And um, there was a cafe in New Preston, Connecticut, where he used to have lunch every day, someone told me. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a good friend in the MFA program who was the youngest member of the Philip Roth Society. <laughs> he, was, he was 27. And, <laughs> and he presented a paper in front of a bunch of 16, 70-year-olds and stalked. Uh, in a very friendly way, Roth and Cornwall. Do you feel a kinship because of that overlap you have with New York, New Jersey, Connecticut? It's kind of your neck of the woods. Do you feel a kinship with Roth, like you recognize what he's writing about, or are the generational differences and the religious differences and kind of the subject matter and, and worldview, is there enough of a departure there from who you are that it doesn't feel like you're reading about something that's terribly familiar? You know, it, it probably was my in with Roth mm -hmm. uh, because I am probably one of the few people who loved Letting Go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like 600-page homage to Henry James. Yeah, which is um, University of Chicago, right? Yeah. And yeah, I read that too. 
there was something about letting go and goodbye Columbus I found very mm. familiar, even mm-hmm. though I'm not Jewish. I'm not, uh, I, I was, you know, younger than his characters yeah. letting go. About but, 40 years, you came along about 40 years after him. You know, like in letting go, um, there was just language, his language that just really impressed me in, in a way when I look back now at the rest of his body work, I'm not sure I think of him as you know, especially original in terms of his style. Mm. But like in Letting Go, he, he describes the U Chicago campus. He says, it was nearly six and the white tennis courts had a simple geometric race under the dark sky. The Gothic archways attested to the serious purpose of the place and made me want to believe that we were all better people than one would suppose from the argument we had just had. Mm. And I think there's like this um, lightness and erudition in his early novels yeah. that really appealed to me as, you know, a young person who wanted to take himself more seriously. Yeah, but that is, that's very interesting because that's a great example of the kind of sentence that Roth really abandoned as he progressed in his career. He he stopped writing like that. That feels yeah. very workmanlike and uh, kind of prosaic. And, and his later works became really all about voice and his his prose became uh, a kind less of a writerly uh, let's put on the necktie and get a good description down here and more of a let's take off the necktie and unbutton the top button and just let ourselves uh, talk here with a full-throated still very smart and and with the the high vocabulary and all of that but but more of a almost like an appeal rather than a uh, description. Yeah, I, I mean, I I guess it's just a personal preference. Is I I, I like a writerly voice, mm. like, mm-hmm. and I like. I think the in his early novels really hit the right chords. Like in Goodbye Columbus, um, you know, the romance of Neil and Brenda. Neil says, you know, they're talking about somebody else, and Neil says to Brenda, Doris, she's the one who's always reading War and Peace. That's how I know it's summer when Doris is reading War and Peace. And then he goes, Brenda didn't laugh right from the start. She was a practical girl. Mm. And he he doesn't, I don't know if he thinks that he dismisses that kind of structure, but he, he doesn't go back to that kind of writing very mm-hmm. often in his later works. Yeah. And I, I sort of miss that. That's the, that's, the, that's the Roth I kind of fell in love with. Yeah, point. right. So how much Roth would you say that you've read? Did you have... I think there's 30 or more novels. I I yeah. counted up. I think I've read 15 or so, uh, maybe oh, wow. 20. Are there? Would you recommend five? I probably read five. Oh, yeah. okay. I, mean, I was gonna say. <laughs> um, I mean, I've never read a Zuckerman novel. Oh wow! Really, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I was gonna say uh, one that would I definitely recommend is Patrimony. Mm, yeah, right. In, in in many ways, that's kind of my favorite. I. Yeah, I was thinking like there there is a direct connection from the Goodbye Columbus dedication, which is to my father, to my mother and father, mm-hmm. and the dedication in Patrimony, which is for our family, comma the living and the dead. Mm. And it's just, I mean, I'll just read a couple of things from Patrimony. I just think his the portrait. If people haven't read it, it's a portrait of his father who's dying. I know uh, Julian Barnes just wrote a, a memoir about dying, nothing to be frightened of, which I haven't read yet. Have you read that yet? No. It, it comes highly recommended, but um, I feel like Patrimony, the way it moves from 
sentimentality to anger and bitterness mm. and, you know, and just like trying to make sense you know he goes if there's no one in the cemetery to observe you you can do some pretty crazy things to make the dead seem something other than the dead but even if you succeed and get yourself worked up enough to feel their presence you still walk away without them what cemeteries prove at least to people like me is that the dead are present but or is not that the dead are present, but that they are gone. They are gone, and as yet we aren't. This is fundamental, and however unacceptable, grasped easily enough. Mm. You know, it's just, it, it's such a short book, yeah. but it moves very, very painstakingly <laughs> over the process of dying. Yeah. I, I just think it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, it, it's probably my favorite of his. James Wolcott uh, said, and this is in that review, that recent review uh, in the London Review of Books that's so good, where James Wolcott said, no American writer since Poe or Melville leaned into death longer, harder, and more unflinchingly than Roth, which I think Patrimony is a good example, but also those later novels where his his narrators, the, their bodies are failing and they're starting to have surgeries and, and so on is... Uh, where Roth really started looking death in the face as he aged. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I, I love Sabbath's theater. I think that's, mm, yeah. to write comically about death and to have death have its weight. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought Sabbath's theater was brilliant. I mean, I, a lot of people I feel like have a favorite from Sabbath theater, American Pastoral, and I Married a Communist. Mm-hmm. But without having read the other two, I just I almost feel like not reading them because I love Sabbath Theater so much. I think it's its most uh, Belovian novel. Yeah. Taking into account all the Bellow I've read and enough Roth, I don't really see them at all as equals. You prefer Bellow? I prefer Bellow, yeah. yeah. I, I had that written down. I, I was going to ask you the question, is Roth someone you recommend to others? And I put my own notes down and I said, for me, never. I'd recommend Bellow, but not Roth, Updike, or Mailer. That's, I mean, if someone asks, I'd point them toward the places I'd start maybe, but I'm just not really pressing Roth into anyone's hands these days. I don't know if that will change as time goes by, but it just feels like some of those authors were force fed to us for so long that mm-hmm. everyone knows who they are and they don't need me to recommend them. And they kind of took up so much oxygen with all the prizes they won and all the reviews of their works and everything and all the different times they appeared in the New Yorker and all of all of that kind of thing. It just seems like it was important to to seek out other authors. But I can already hear people getting angry. And I just want to say that you don't need, I'm addressing this to listeners now, you don't need to email me to tell me your thoughts about Philip Roth. If you, if you have something you want to say, write it in a blog post or, or tweet it. You could tweet it, Mike, at Literature SC, but I just, I don't have time to address the arguments in email because I know he's, people come down on all sides of Philip Roth and I'm on all sides too. And I understand the arguments in all different directions. And if you want to read Philip Roth and enjoy, if he's your favorite writer, that's great. Enjoy yourself with him or you can ignore him altogether. That's fine with me too. Literature is there for, for people to take in whatever way they want. And I'm, I just thought today, Mike and I, we can provide some conversation about Philip Roth to add to the mix, but that doesn't mean I'm looking to 
hear opinions on things I get wrong and how I just don't understand what a genius he is or how I overstate what a genius he is or any of those things. So to support that point, they are real flashes in Sabbath theater that I think I think of him as almost like a European writer. Mm. You know, there's in Sabbath, Sabbath, there's a scene where he says um, all he knew for sure was that Norman was more frightened of him than he was of Norman being nude also seemed to bestow an advantage with a conscious conscience as developed as Norman's the advantage of seeming defenselessness. Sabbath's talent for this sort of scene Norman could not hope to equal. The talent of a ruined man for recklessness, of a saboteur for subversion, even the talent of a lunatic or a simulated lunatic to overawe and horrify ordinary people. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, I think the, the language in Sabbath theater uh, just runs over, you know, runs over you. And it's like so much fun to read. And I think that's, when I think of the Roth, I like it's his humor and his like belief in himself. Like I, I really enjoyed plot against America. Mm. I think he, that was like a, a, a tight roll back to keep that story in the air. Yeah. And, and he does it. Right. Well, I feel like maybe we're stepping on the draft here. If you're, uh, uh, I don't want to use up all your specifics. So why don't we start with that? And like I said, it's 10 things about Philip Roth. It can be a positive or a negative. And I'm not sure I'm going to have five. I was telling you before we got started here that my five all tended to kind of sound the same after a while. Mm -hmm. So what I might do is just comment on your five. We'll see how it goes. It depends on what you pick, I guess. So why don't we start the draft? I'll let you take the first pick. What is something we should know about Philip Roth? I think the rawness of sex and mm. sexuality in yeah. his, his writing. <laughs> that's, that's kind of numbers one through ten, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's so many examples, but I, I picked one that I had forgotten. And this is like not exact, exactly sexual, but sort of like just shows his range. He says... This is in a Port Noise complaint. He says, I suddenly re remember how my mother taught me to piss standing up, exclamation point. Listen, this may well be a piece, the piece of information we've been work waiting for, the key to what determined my character, what causes me to be living in this predicament torn by desires that are repugnant to my conscience and a conscience repugnant to my desires. Here is how I learned to pee into the bowl like a big man. Just listen to this. I stand over a circle of water, my baby's weenie jutting cutely forth while my mama sits beside the toilet on the rim of the bathtub one hand controlling the tap of the tub from which a trickle runs that i'm supposed to imitate and her other hand tickling the underside of my prick i repeat tickling my prickling <laughs> it's, it, it just goes on and i think even now it, it people don't <laughs> many writers most writers don't even try to attempt to do something like this yeah. Um, and back then it was shocking, but I find that even now it's, you know, it's very original and, and completely engrossing. So I, I think he, I'm not going to say he's the first one, but well, he, to him, it's, it's a very deliberate device. And I, I respect that. You know, it was almost like a literature had been crawling through this desert because was censorship. You know, Ulysses was censored for much less explicit 
right. writing and and D.H. Lawrence and you know it was like that and that was not really lifted in the United States until the fifties and then there was Lolita and and then you get the Roth and Updike and Gore Vidal and you get people who are it's almost like once that door could be opened a little bit it just got completely knocked down and trampled over by these elephants who came charging through people maybe got a little bit exhausted by it it it's kind of nice that you're reading something that's highbrow but talking about yeah. sex it's not just you know it's not erotica or it's not just a sort of a, a low rent smuttiness but on the other hand it's <laughs> It just becomes like so tiring sometimes to read where every Philip Roth book, it seems like he didn't have that much energy to write sometimes unless he had in there something about the character dealing with sex. Either they're, they're seducing someone or they're, uh, right. they haven't had sex or they're, they're impotent or it just seemed like it's so central to so many of his books that, uh, I don't know. It gets a little tiresome. Well, maybe that's the key to my my love of Roth, my appreciation for Roth, is that I haven't read books like The Breast. The Breast, you know? right. So here's here's <laughs> Roth, who he, and this is one of my picks, so I'll just take this one, I guess. He had this thing with, with Eastern European writers, and this was before the curtain, when there was still an iron curtain. So it was before the wall fell. And mm -hmm. these writers were, a lot of them were being censored, and they were writing in the Soviet Union, and they a lot of them were in the Czech Republic or near it. I guess it was Czechoslovakia back then. But it, it set off this chord in Roth. And for whatever reason, he identified with them. I think a lot of it was his love for Kafka and his shared love with mm -hmm. those writers for Kafka and that they were all kind of Kafka disciples or Kafka admirers. And he went there and he edited a Penguin uh, edition of... Uh, a series of uh, writers from the other Europe, I think it was called, and it it promoted these writers in Western Europe and in America. And he did a lot for them. And he would write, you know, the introductions, and he went to visit there several times. And it's all kind of one of the more admirable things about him, I think, is that he was, and I don't know if part of it was was connected to the Holocaust, and he was born in 1933, but he was in America, obviously. And so I think he knew that maybe uh, a lot of the writers had kind of gone through a piece of history that he had been fortunate to be distant from, but that they were more closely connected to or whatever it is. But then, yeah, so he's got this, he's, he's someone who admires Kafka, and he's writing a book that's obviously sort of an homage to the metamorphosis, and yet mm -hmm. all, it's almost like the only thing he can think of to do is to have a character become a female breast which just, it's like a caricature of himself. I mean, if it was, if there was a Saturday Night Live of literature, you would imagine <laughs> that that's what they would come up with him doing. And uh, <laughs> I don't no, know. It's, it's embarrassing to, that a, a, a grown, a grown-up wrote a novel. That, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, people make fun of Paul Oster for writing Tim Buck. Uh, <laughs> Three, two, one, two, three. From the perspective of a dog, yeah. And I, I always bring up Philip Roth's *The Breast*, and people are just like, "Really?" Yeah. But, yeah. I saw that book in the bookstore. I think I was traveling. I was in maybe in Nepal or something, and I just I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it that he had written it. But anyway, 
<laughs> there we go. It, once again, it's sort of the thing that kind of got him, got his creative juices flowing, no pun intended. They say it's the, the hardest thing to write about, sex, mm. you know, to do it well. And, you know, I think maybe choice parts of Roth do it well, and the rest of it I just choose to ignore. Well, there's something, there's sort of an elephant in the room, and since you brought up sex, and I don't know what your, if you want to go on to your number two, or if we should just talk about the elephant in the room, but uh, why don't you choose your number two? Yeah, I mean, I, no, let's talk about the Okay, about so the, the yeah, the elephant in the room, I think, is women. I think the biggest drawback to his descriptions of sex is yeah. that the women they become such vehicles for the male sex drive and and he's a seducer you know that's commented on a lot that his you know he seems to have been a great seducer in life and a great seducer in his yeah. books and he's seducing the reader and he's seducing it's it's like he's in this constant state of seduction and his characters are not only doing that, he's sort of assuming that all men must, that this must just be the natural state of men. This is that he's describing something universal. And right. I get it. I get that you could read it and say, well, it's great that he's talking about this is how men really think, or at least this is how one man really thinks. And it's honest and it's open and it's fearless and it's raw mm -hmm. and it's accurate and all that is to the good. And, and I get that that's what fiction should do. And it's, I'm not condemning anything that anyone chooses to write about from any sort of moral high ground or anything like that. The problem I have with it is that it turns women into, like, it It just, it's so limiting and it's so boring. It's so, it, it makes the women just there to be conquered or not, or there to be a source of frustration or not, and, or a pair of breasts or not, you know, it's like someone yeah. who's seducible or not, or ugly or not, you know, and it kind of becomes like, just as a way of looking at the world and of looking at half of humanity, it just feels so narrow. And so it makes him seem so small. And the fiction just seems so tiresome that I just think there is so much you could be learning from these people, or you could be growing if you would look at them as something other than just, here's a great pair of legs. How can I get her into bed? I mean, this is where maybe not having read that much of Roth, I don't think of him as especially worse than, you know, worse off than um, Bellow. I mean, yeah. you know, because I, I haven't read 15 books of Roth. Yeah. Um, right. But, and, but, you know, when I think of who, what books I recommend to people who, yeah, I meet who have never read Roth. I always recommend Goodbye Columbus because I think it's such a time capsule of an era. Yeah, the beginnings of his the the way he started to struggle and find a way to write about you know Judaism. Uh, and then I mentioned and then I recommend Patrimony because mm. it has the most humiliation of in all of his books and the most humility. It's very relatable. Everyone I recommend Patrimony to, they love that book. Mm. And they're, they're kind of surprised how much they love it because they think of Roth as like just a horny toad. And he's yeah. you know, and here his father is like shitting himself in the tub. And, you know, Roth has to like clean it up. And 
Well, there's no denying, and I, I'm not in the category of people who say, oh, just bow down, he's a genius. But there's no yeah. denying that he is incredibly facile with his prose. Like, he has a, such a great facility with that voice. Yeah. It, it's like a, a smart Huck Finn, or, you know, it's like this intelligence that comes through, and it's not too showy. It's not Nabokov, it's not Updike. But it's he can right. really make it move and can really get a point across and can really tell a story. And so you do feel like if you can find those spots in the Roth books where he's talking about something other than uh, women, basically, <laughs> it it's yeah. good. You know, or once in a while, there's a character who's I'm sure someone is now thinking of their favorite character who's like a grandmother or something. And, you yeah. know, that it doesn't fall into this category. But. So yeah, Patrimony, Goodbye Columbus was a little bit sweeter. You know, it's funny because I was thinking of Philip Roth Reconsidered, that that's kind of what we were doing here. And so I Googled mm -hmm. Philip Roth Reconsidered. And the first thing that came up was an essay by Irving Howe from 1972 called Philip Roth Reconsidered. And it was like, they've been reconsidering Roth for 50 years. <laughs> and Roth hated the essay. It was something very interesting that Irving Howe had in it. But he said in there, when Roth came out with Goodbye Columbus, he was widely praised. And I was the one of, one of the ones who praised him. That's what mm -hmm. Irving Howe said. And he said, now I've gotten tired of his, his works. And mm -hmm. so I found that really interesting because that was only like, you know, 10 or 12 years in, and already he was thinking, something's gone wrong here with Roth. And what his argument was, was that what Roth came to do after Goodbye Columbus, Goodbye Columbus has a sort of sweetness to it, but yeah. after Goodbye Columbus, Roth became assertive and confrontational, and that he mm -hmm. was fighting war, uh, uh, wars against imagined enemies. And that mm -hmm. can be kind of appealing, you know, when, when a writer is an underdog or where they're scrappy and you kind of get in on their fights with them and you, you go along with it. But he, as how put it, he says, he's constantly putting himself forward as superior or mm -hmm. the quote how had was an enormous thrust of personal and ideological assertiveness. And then he said in Roth's books, quote, there can be little doubt that Roth will steadily pin his opponent to the ground. His great need is for a stance of superiority, mm. end quote. And it's kind of like there's a sort of snarl to it sometimes. And, yeah. uh, you know, that I like it when he's fighting against people who are trying to limit him in some way or that who try to, to paint him into a corner or want him to be a particular kind of writer or a particular kind of Jewish writer. And I like that he's he's clever and he's fighting back and he's he's taking them on and and it's got the sharp elbows to fight back and all that. But sometimes it becomes where the reader is not in the same fight and says, you know, you're fighting against any woman who is not actively having sex with you <laughs> or, you know, anyone, any of your ex-wives or any of your girlfriends, or it just seems like you're waging all these battles against people who maybe I'd like to hear their side of the story or, uh, you know, you're sort of setting them up to knock them down. I mean, he started, I mean, many writers get into this rut, but he, he started to become predictable. I mean, I, one of my, one of the things I was going to say that I, I hate about Roth is he just wrote too many books. Yeah. I mean, Plot Against America was, I think, his last great book. He churned out Every Man in 2006, Indignation in 2008, The Humbling in 2009, Nemesis in 2010. It was just like, 
who can keep up, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I'm sure everything was written well, but I mean, it, it probably in the last 20 years, I've just started, well, in the last 10 years, I've started committing about a third of my year's reads to rereads. Mm. Yeah. And it's made me very aware of a really memorable book versus, you know, one that was like fine reading it and yeah. I can discuss it, but it started to reach the level of like a Netflix show that I was fond of. Mm. Yeah. Know? Right. It's like, you know, Uptake had this thing where he, somebody told him early on in his career, like, you know, the real writers have a book a year or maybe, maybe I'm thinking wow. of somebody else. Wow. Yeah. And so that was sort of his goal, you know, a book, a book under the Christmas tree. You know, you can get dad a, a hardcover update book for your Christmas gift every year. And mm -hmm. that felt productive to him. And it felt he was sort of depression era kid. And it was like, it's, it's good to, to turn them out like this. I can do it. And you kind of think, yeah, that was great during his lifetime. And he did, you know, he was constantly being reviewed. He was constantly being excerpted. The The latest Updike novel would be something everyone would talk about and all of that. And a lot of people would buy. But if you right. if you look at it in terms of literary reputation, writers are better off having two or three or even one masterpiece yeah. than they are having like 15 like good books. You know, you, you're better off having one A plus than having... Mm. 15 B pluses or A minuses. But that, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, but that's not the way the industry works. I mean, right. Right, everything you need to, you, you, you know, it's like arsonist da daughter and wonder boys. Like, you know, you need to have that follow up. You need to have, you can't go nine years between books. Yeah. Um, right. I, I think that's a good segue to my third pick. I mean, I, I talked about the sex and rawness and just being too prolific the third thing I wanted to talk about was I just love Roth for what he represents in, in terms of like influence and clout mm. uh, for America. I feel like he was the American great we had along with Bello against like the Europeans. Mm. There's so much to admire about him. You know, he, he, he wrote morning, afternoon and night, 365 days a year. He said that a biography of him would be so boring because it would be writing in a room by myself, which was practically my whole life. Yeah. You know, he was incredibly well-read, incredibly uh, well-versed. I mean, he, you know, you mentioned Kafka. I remember reading that he said, he, I mean, he, he was just full of great anecdotes. He said, Kafka was writing a story. I read somewhere that he used to giggle to himself while he worked. Of course, it was also funny, this morbid preoccupation with punishment and guilt. Hideous, but funny. Mm. And I started to actually enjoy interviews with Roth yeah. more than the books because yeah, I was thinking right. like, this guy is just, you know, <laughs> he is everything that one aspires to when you want to be a writer. Yeah. Yeah. If only he could have gotten out of his own way a little more. He had such a devotion to literature. That's true. I had that on my list as well. And I read an essay by Daphne Merkin. Mm -hmm. who um, had kind of known Roth and, and was sort of wrote a review or a, a memoir of him. And she liked him and she was sort of defending him. She recognized that his, his need to be a seducer 
was kind of like was kind of like what I've been saying. It was all of it. It was the driving force behind all of his books. But on the other hand, something got him to sit down and do it, and he was so committed to it. He, yeah. you know, she said, for all that Roth was and wasn't, he was first and foremost a writer. He spent most of his waking hours alone, painstakingly crafting one sentence after another. It was what yeah. mattered to him in the long and short run, beyond all the careerist machinations. And or machinations. So it was like a, it was a purity. It was conviction. It was this devotion to writing that he had. It was high minded, a kind of high minded passion. She called it. And even though he maybe exposed himself in a way that does not look that flattering in retrospect, it is hard. And like you said, he maybe wrote too many books, but it's hard to get around the fact that he put together a body of of work and put out this kind of monumental <laughs> I think it surprised people when he started coming out with those books he sort of had this second or maybe it was his third act at that point and mm-hmm. he had kind of his his days in the tabloids kind of settled down and he kind of settled into Connecticut and he just started cranking out these novels every couple of years and then it got to be, you know, they were winning prizes and then it got to be where they were all very different from one another. And then he had those that run of, of shorter books that came out. And it just seemed like he was sort of settling into mm-hmm. a, a sincere attempt to really create a lasting body of work. And it was all very high quality. I mean, it wasn't even though I sort of say that he'd be better off with having one or two A pluses. And I don't know if Portnoy's complaint is going to be that or, or what it would be that people read 50 years from now or a hundred years from now, maybe Sabbath theater or something. I don't know what he would put forward as his A plus, but it's not like he was writing C minuses. You know, they were all, they were all worth reading and pretty good. But I'm never going to read those. I mean, I would, I would, yeah. I'd, be more, I'd be more likely to reread Portnoy's complaint, which I, I enjoyed reading. Mm. Um, than uh, the human stain or indignation yeah. or any of those deception. Apparently, Portnoy was based on four abandoned projects, which he spent <laughs> about six years writing. Uh, he took the wreckage, the best of the four abandoned projects, and yeah. built it into Portnoy's complaint. Uh, so, I, I just feel like you know maybe you should have taken four novels, his four later novels, and try to craft something that had that kind of like fire that <laughs> poor noise complaint that has. I mean, I, I think when you know someone's voice, you almost don't cut them slack mm. because you start to read it and you just think like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So he meets this woman. They're going to have sex. Right. And you just think like, well, you know, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to read someone I've never read before. Right. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of how I am now with Roth is I'll, I'll get about 10 or 15 pages in and I'll just kind of think, oh, I remember all of this. I remember this from whether I've read this book before or if I've read other books of his, I just sort of remember this whole, yeah, this whole worldview and this whole attitude and this whole stance and maybe I've reached my limit. It's really hard. Um, and I think, you know, you're, it's admirable you read 15 of his books because inevitably my interest in an author wanes after that initial infatuation mm. even like someone like Murakami who I really enjoy you know there have been a couple of books here and there that I haven't read 
And I'm not dying to read those gaps. I just know that I right. love Norwegian Wood and Wind Up Bird. And I think his recent book, The Colorless, Mr. Um, Tezuki, it was a great book. But yeah, it's, a, it's you know, obviously they're, 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 they're writers. They, they have this passion. They have this desire to kind of put out a better book. I mean, I don't think Roth was trying to write worse or write shorter i think he just felt like this was what he had in him and his interest but when you when you read i, I mean i don't know if i love port noise complaint but it, it, it really impressed me mm. how how original it was yeah and i read it in you know the 90s i mean what what, what was it like when it first came out you know? yeah right and that was one of my reasons um that i had in the draft is i think in the hindsight of 50 years, we'll have a real appreciation for having, for him having made Jewishness mainstream. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's something. something we haven't talked a lot about, but that is definitely, that was yeah. on my list as well. And I think, you know, when we did that Salinger episode and the story that I had not heard before, but that mm-hmm. Salinger, when he went to this prep school. Right. Oh, man. That, that was a they, great story. Yeah. And that in his class book, his, his class yearbook, they, they perforated the page with his picture on it so that kids could tear it out if they wanted uh, so that they wouldn't That's have crazy. to have a, a Jewish classmate if they wanted to erase that from their experience. It's just it's a reminder of just what anti-Semitism there was and it was in the publishing industry too and by the time we came along in the 90s that was really kind of unthinkable i think the yeah. idea that you would have american literature that did not have jewish americans as being a significant part of it i mean Saul Bellow and and Philip Roth really uh, kind of put that to an end i think yeah i mean it, i think the way to make you know a group mainstream is by showing their flaws in a way that shows their humanity because you know when you constantly applaud and brag about their accomplishments it's it, you know it's it's exclusionary it kind of says like we're different and we're better mm. but here roth just kind of you know just simple stuff like you know look look how how much i hate my parents look how much how flawed my parents are it was so relatable mm. And I, I think that's there's there's maybe a little bit of an underappreciation for him, and um, in in that sense. And I know when I read it as a Korean uh, American, I just felt like, you know, there was like great lines like in in Patrimony. He says, "My father got a lot of mileage out of never recognizing the differences among people." Mm. And I was like, you know what? That's that just reminded me so much of Koreans. Mm. You know, there's yeah. like, there's a time to like really, really pick people out and other times where you know, you just dismiss them. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, it was like both Jewish and also just very human. Yeah. And very American and very sort of pop culture American. Yeah. You know, Murakami is yeah. a good example of this too, where it's sort of like, there's something about being, let's say a Japanese author and not being like someone who's writing out of a tradition of you know, samurais or something. And, and right. there's something about being a Jewish American writer and just having it be like the guy next door, you know, and the neighbor and not like some exotic, someone who's tracing back their lineage to... <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even know how to put it without sounding sort of, it sounds kind of goofy, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not fiddler on the roof, you know, it's not yeah. the, here's the Yiddish guy coming to tell humorous Yiddish stories. It's like, here's a guy who's living in a house in a suburb and is driving a car and is watching television like everybody else and reading books like everybody else, going to college just like everybody else and trying to get laid like everybody else. That's kind of like the the Roth of the 50s that it's a quasi or or almost maybe more than quasi assimilated Jew that is a different experience that I think probably did quite a bit to, you could imagine a, a different type of writer who would have made uh who would not have broken down those doors the way that he did yeah that probably inspired a lot of um minorities that this 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 was a path forward i mean it was um i think it's now so normal it's become so uh common today to see like a debut collection of short stories or a first novel that talks about like the flaws of you know the the community that they live in, that we sort of forget the way Roth did it and what a war it was. I mean, mm. you know, certain Jewish groups really went after him. Yeah, right. Okay, well, we're getting to the end of our time here. So is there anything else you want to say about Philip Roth? No, but uh, other than uh, I read recently, I forget which writer said that the ghost writer was mm. Roth's best book. Mm. So I picked that up used and I'm going to read it. Yeah. That's that's a good one. I mean, that, that is kind of in that that era where he was coming off of his early works and moving into the later works. It's kind of a bridge style. Yeah. And you know, I always like thinking of the the great writer in there as being uh Saul Bellow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh I think you'll probably enjoy it. Uh you know, the funny thing I wanted to mention that I forgot sort of the punchline of his trip to Eastern Europe when we were talking about him being uh-huh. uh, trying to find something he did that wasn't all about sex. And and I talked about his love for Kafka and then how he wrote about the breast, which actually is all about sex. But there's an even better punchline to it, which is when he was going to Czechoslovakia to help these writers, mm-hmm. he at one point was going through customs and they were looking at his passport and saying, you know, what are you here for? What is your purpose here? And one of his fellow fellow novelists at Eastern European said, haven't you read his books? He comes for the girls. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of wanted to say, because he's got this sort of, it's kind of this hang up. I think in some ways I might revisit Roth at some point. If once we get away from him being the great man of American letters, Mm -hmm. which I think, I know you sort of have praised that, here today, but I I kind of found that to be a little bit off-putting, and I think if we get to a point where we view him as sort of a a flawed weirdo who was also a great prose writer and was really dedicated to writing novels and had all of these weird ideas, but also had this kind of uh, had these gaps in in his own self-awareness and and his ability to uh, you know his inability to write about uh, anything other than sex for long stretches of time. And I, I think in some ways I'm sort of more interested in that Philip Roth than I am in the Philip Roth of the uh, the one getting the medal put around his neck and, and the one who's on the front page of the New York Times Sunday Book Review. <laughs> 
Okay, so let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for Philip Roth. My thanks to Mike for joining me and to all of you for sticking around both today and through all the past episodes. Our next episode, oh boy. We have a very special episode coming up, people. One that is like no other, or one that we've never done before. This one, oh boy. It's going to be unusual. Stay tuned. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.